Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. The Empire State Building is known throughout the world as one of the icons of freedom, democracy, and the culmination of diverse people working together to accomplish something bigger and greater than themselves. It's a destination for tourists around the world to come visit, it's a sight to behold for those who have never seen it before, and it's the million-dollar view for observers in neighboring apartment buildings and skyscrapers. Its sheer size creates wonderment, and the speed at which it was built only expounds that amazement. We know you probably have heard and maybe even seen the Empire State Building, but I bet you've never heard of a plane crashing into it in 1945. Nope, we're not talking about the horrifying day on 9-11 when two planes crashed into the World Trade Centers. We're talking about a B-25 accidentally crashing into the Empire State Building. Join us today as we talk about the accident and one of the most unbelievable survival story twists on this episode of The Missing Chapter. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Phil and I would like to take a moment to thank everyone who submitted voice recordings in our listener appreciation giveaway. We have three winners who will be receiving our missing chapter mugs in the weeks to come. So thank you to Anna Rothrock, Kathleen Moon, and Marcia Schaff. We will be posting their recordings in future episodes, so tune in to hear some of our listeners' recordings. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for future giveaways and episodes. And as always, thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter Podcast, and Merry Christmas. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Missing Chapter Podcast. You're here with Phil Hornder and Phil Schaff. Phil and I are enjoying a Utica Coffee Roasting Company blend this morning called the 100th Birthday Blend in honor of the United Way of the Mohawk Valley. Um, this is actually something they're doing to raise money for the United Way. It commemorates the 100th anniversary uh, of a great uh, company that um, raises a lot of money for a lot of good people, Phil. And obviously in November and December, you know, we, we turn our attention to, to giving back. And uh, this is a great way that the Utica Coffee Roasting Company is doing it. Yeah, and absolutely. we're able to enjoy a good cup of coffee in the in the at the same time. Yeah, you said it because as soon as we took a sip of this coffee, it was like, oh my gosh, this actually might be one of my favorite blends. So I hope you keep it going, uh, Utica Coffee Roasting Company. You guys do a great job. Uh, before we get into this episode, we just want to uh, address something that um, some users have have uh, notified us about is with ads. There might be some difference in. Um, in ads where you maybe you're using Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Pandora, and the ads are are a little bit different uh, per uh, distribution. So you might have um, a couple of ads on Spotify, whereas you might not have ads in Apple Podcasts. So just to give you a heads up, uh, nothing's wrong with your 
uh, set up at all on your phones or on however you listen, but um, it might just be something from the different distributors. So just want to make sure that you guys are aware because we have gotten some notifications of that. Yeah. And now, just a reminder, I mean, anytime you have questions or anytime you have a question about a particular episode or something with the format, feel free to reach out to us, the missing chapter podcast at gmail.com. You guys can always visit our website, the missing chapter podcast.com and, and let us know. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we love doing is we, obviously we love sharing stories. So this was a, a story, Phil, that I remember a couple of weeks ago, I, I, it was one of those things where it's like you, you hear about something. So then you kind of do some extra research. It's very similar to what we do for every episode, essentially. But with mm-hmm. this one, there was like there was a level of amazement and actual like actual disbelief. Like I didn't yeah. really think this was true. And then the more I, I delved deeper into this, I could not believe it. So it was one of those things where it's like I remember talking to you about it and saying, Phil, listen, I, I got this piece of information. I, I don't want to share it with you because I want that shock and awe to be captured on the microphone when we record this. But at the same time, I can't keep this a secret. So this is a little bit different of an episode because you already know about the topic that I shared with you. And then you and I both have done a a pretty decent amount of research on this. And we we just want to talk about it because this is one of those things, especially being a New Yorker, that I I would have thought that everybody in New York was aware of. Um, I, growing up in New York, have never heard of this story. And it deals with the Empire State Building. Right. And Phil, we, we kind of mentioned this in season one when we did the episode on the stock market terrorist attack. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good and point. how really I, I was I almost felt guilty that I didn't know about it, let alone know enough about it. And that's kind of the same guilt I felt or actually disbelief that I did. Yeah. I had never heard about this before. Yeah. I, so the Empire State Building, is, as we mentioned in the intro, it's just an iconic building. And essentially, when everyone goes to New York, there are certain places you want to go to see. And of course, I think one of the, the, the tourist attractions that people now want to go see, of course, is, is uh, the World Trade Center Memorial and that kind of thing, and rightly so. But I think the Empire State Building has got to be one of the biggest tourist attractions in the world. And you know, we took a group there uh, to New York City a few years back, Phil, and one of the things they say is, if you want the best view of New York City, you got to go to Rockefeller Center in right, the observatory, right. because when you're at Rockefeller Center, you get to see the Empire State Building. Um, they even built a, a new apartment complex uh, near the Empire State Building. And you're talking, you know, $30 million or something like that to go to the penthouse uh, to buy the penthouse apartment on top. Uh, so you have that Empire State Building view. And I think it's one of those things where as a New Yorker, you're proud of downstate New York and what is created uh, that, that human beings can actually create something this big, this massive. Um, and it was all built on, on basically like competition, which right. I think is really cool. They wanted it to be the, the largest building ever created at the time. And it was, um, and there's also a few features of the empire state building that boggles the mind. One of those things is the fact that it was built in a little over 400 days. Now you and I have both done some renovations to our house. And I think a lot of people have done that, uh, through the pandemic, you know, you're on a staycation. So you want to make sure that your home is taken care of. So we, we renovated our basement and it felt like nine years and it took us about nine months and the fact that they built a what is it 1200 foot building Mm -hmm. in 400 days with about 3500 men is absolutely astonishing that in and of itself is is incredible it's an amazing uh, an amazing feat and like you mentioned phil i mean you you have arguably the most famous city in the world at least one of yep i can't think of a more iconic image of new york city you have 
the Empire State Building and you have the Statue of Liberty. But because the Empire State Building, you know, has played such an important role in things like, you know, our culture, pop culture, movies, literature, it really is one of those things that you just feel drawn to if you visit the city and you have to see. Yeah. And I, I think this story just kind of adds to that history and that mystique. It really is an amazing story. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that it, it's incredible as you start diving deeper and we're not really into this portion of like the history of the Empire State Building, but you have to mention the fact that, um, you know, there, there was actually a building in, in its footprint beforehand that they actually drew the, the plans to say, hey, I think it's not going to take us that long because there's already footing and there's a really good, strong bedrock um, at the base of this. So one of the reasons why it was built so quickly is because it actually took over the footprint of a different building. Mm. But as it's being constructed, you see all of these just unbelievable feats um, that it, it, it creates this wonderment and amazement that we mentioned in the intro that I think anybody throughout the world can appreciate. But the twist about this, and I think there's multiple twists we're going to talk about. One of the big things here is there's a major accident that took right. place in 1945. Right. And and Phil, you touched on it right there. Is that We've built this up. We've said how iconic of a, of a structure this is, but no one has ever heard of this event. And people are thinking, well, get to it. Like, how can that be possible? Right. You just mentioned it's 1945. You know, as we like to tell kids, you know, that we teach in class, you have to set up the historical context. What's going on in the world, you know, when this event plays out? So July 28th, 1945 is obviously, you know, the height, the tail end of, of World War II. Yep. And that, I think, for many reasons is why this gets, kind of gets overshadowed by some events that will play out, you know, in the upcoming weeks and upcoming months. Yep. But we're going to start the story with Lieutenant Colonel William Smith. Lieutenant Colonel William Smith was a highly decorated pilot. And we mentioned World War II. He had flown over 34 combat missions over Europe, over 34 combat missions over Europe. And he's he's freshly back in the States. He hadn't been in the United States for all that long. And Smith was to be transferred to duty in the Pacific. Obviously, in July 20th, 1945, we're turning our attention from the European theater and the defeat of uh, fascism with, with Mussolini and Hitler to still the events playing out in the war against Japan. But first, Smith had been sent from Bedford Field near Boston, Mass., in a B-25 Mitchell bomber to confer with his commanding officer, who was located and stationed in Newark, New Jersey. All right. Smith found that the New York City metro area, however, Phil, was covered that morning with a very heavy, dense fog. So he flew toward LaGuardia Airport in Queens and at that point requested a landing clearance at, at LaGuardia. He was told to, that he could proceed to Newark as long as he had three miles of visibility. Mm -hmm. Now, listen, I'm not a pilot. Um, I don't know if three miles of visibility is is a long way. Right. Yeah. If it's a short way, if that if that request or them saying, hey, if you, as long as you could say three miles in front of you, go ahead and, and continue on to Newark. I would love to know that. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and but I don't know. He, he decides and you're dealing with somebody who's obviously a commemorated somebody who's a very decorated um, veteran says, OK, that that's realistic. So he didn't. But whatever visibility Smith had, you know, when he made that decision, didn't last long. And as he flew over Manhattan, Smith's last words to LaGuardia Tower were very, very ominous. He was quoted as saying, from where I'm sitting, I can't see the top of the Empire State Building. 
So shortly after that, Smith's 12-ton B-25 plowed into the 79th floor of the Empire State Building at about 200 miles per hour. The plane's wings were sheared off, remnants of which clung to the gaping hole on the side of the building were found later on by inspectors. 800 gallons of aviation fuel, it's estimated, poured out of the punctured tanks and down hallways and stairwells. Flames shot upward as far as the 86th floor and the observation deck located there. And I got to tell you, Phil, looking at the pictures online, I mean, it's very reminiscent of those of us who lived through 9-11. Yeah, it's I mean, chilling. the pictures yeah. look almost identical to what we saw that day. And I think it's 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 hard for me because when 9-11 took place, I never, no one ever mentioned about the plane that it, that it hit this, this building either. So, yeah. And I know we're going to get into that, why that was maybe overshadowed by other events in 1945. But, I mean, this is something that, why wasn't this a headline news story, mm, you know? That's a great point. Um, and, and with that amount of fuel and going up and down several floors, it ended up being a, a four-alarm fire, which I, I'm assuming everyone could imagine. It was then the highest building fire in New York's history. Uh, but this is a remarkable aspect. I think the, the heroism that... that is reminiscent of 9-11 is the fact that these firefighters managed to extinguish the flames in 40 minutes. Which I'm wondering how, how on earth they did that. Well, I think it was part of the construction of the Empire State Building. So they, one of the things that, that a lot of these um, skyscrapers are, are worried about, obviously, that at least the engineers are, is, is, is fire. How mm. do you get to the upper floors? One, things that they, one of the things that they have managed to do is have highly, highly pressurized water systems on each floor. So I think that definitely helped. But it, I mean, needless to say, how, how how long does it take with all these um, cables snapping and, and elevator shafts? How are they able to go up, you know, 80 some odd floors or 70 floors to get to these people and then extinguish it in 40 minutes? It's just absolutely, absolutely remarkable. And I, I think this is also very uh, reminiscent of, the, of that generation too. Amazingly, there were some undamaged sections, of course, People were went back to work just two days later. So this took place on a Saturday. And Monday, people went back to work. And that makes me think back to the, the stock market terrorist uh, yes. explosion, too. You said almost to a fault. It actually hurt the investigation that day. And I'm wondering, you know, people who went back to work, I mean, what they exposed themselves to. I mean, point. you're talking about, you know, things that had burned and, and jet fuel that had entered this building. You know, I realize people want to get back to a sen that that semblance of normalcy, but that you know, at, at what cost? Absolutely. I um, and another question that that brought to my mind is, you know, how many people are, are typically in the Empire State Building? And mm. and a quick research was there could be a possible fifteen thousand people at one time in the Empire State Building in, in one building. In one building, you know, uh, World Trade Center towers I think housed uh, twenty thousand each. Mm. Uh, Empire State Building is 15,000 people. And, and I believe if, if I'm wrong, please, uh, listeners, feel free to contact us and say I'm incorrect. But I believe it's it's there's no residential floors. I think it's all office space, which is really the population of a small city. Oh, absolutely is. Um, so what, the question I, I'm immediately asked when I saw this was how were there only and I hate to mm -hmm. I don't want to diminish the fact that over a dozen people lost their lives because some estimates are 13, some say 14 and some of the sources that I have. But how is it only a little over a dozen casualties? Well, you got to remember this took place on a Saturday and it's just before 10 a.m. Uh, you know, th that's obviously a pretty fortunate uh, aspect of this horrific event. 
only a handful of sightseers on the observation deck that morning. Uh, but much of the, the rest of the building was, you know, taking the day off. But there was a volunteer organization on the 79th floor that was hard at work that Saturday. And they, they were the, it was the National Catholic Welfare Council. Unfortunately, nine uh, women specifically were instantly burned uh, by the flaming aviation fuel. And one of the volunteers who actually survived is a woman by the name of Catherine O'Connor. She said there were five or six seconds I was tottering on my feet, trying to keep my balance, and three quarters of the office was instantaneously consumed in this sheet of flame. One man was standing inside the flame. I could see him. It was a co-worker, Joe Fountain. His whole body was on fire. I kept calling on him, come on, Joe, come on, Joe, and he walked out of it. Uh, another man, a publicity officer for the Catholic charity, was killed when the force of the blast threw him out of a window. Um, Gloria Paul worked for the United Service Organization's headquarters uh, which was on the 56th floor, she was quoted in saying, I was at the file cabinet and all of a sudden the building felt like it was just going to topple over. Uh, it threw me across the room and I landed against the wall. People were screaming and looking at each other. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know if it was a bomb or what happened. It was terrifying. Now, as you said, both of the plane's engines tore off uh, the wings, shot through the building. One fell in the elevator shaft, like you mentioned. The other hurtled completely through the building, ripped out the other side, fell 900 feet through the roof of a nearby building destroying a penthouse art studio. Um, you know, I'm not trying to paint the picture of, you know, trying to trying to like really evoke a lot of emotion here. I'm just trying to present facts just to give it the honor that really those victims deserve. And I'm not trying to be morbid either, but it's just, it's the, the, the events surrounding this is, are just so tragic. They are. And when you said, Somewhere in the vicinity of a dozen, a few more than a dozen people died. That also included, correct me if I'm wrong, the three people on board the plane, correct? Correct. So yeah. you're talking Smith, his co-pilot, and another gentleman who was just along for the, the, the plane ride that day. You don't want to downplay the number of lives lost, but at the same time, when you throw out 15,000 yeah. and you think about what could have been if this was the regular a regular morning, maybe on Monday or a Tuesday those casualty numbers, Phil, would have been much, much higher. Absolutely. Yeah. And now I think what we need to do, though, Phil, is, is we, we ended this segment of the of the episode really on a dark note. We are going to give the listeners one of the biggest twists, fortunate twists, I think uh, we've ever seen. Welcome back, everybody, from the break. Um, so, Phil, I got to tell you, this is one of the more interesting pieces to research. And I know, um, you know, when we talk about the Empire State Building, there's so many things that, that surround it. But this is one of those topics that there's so many twists and turns. And I think after talking this over with you, I think there's, there's actually going to be a follow-up episode because even the design itself of the Empire State Building, there's so much history involved in it. So I, I think in the coming weeks here, um, listeners, be ready because I think we're going to do a little bit of a, a, a different twist on the Empire State Building itself and some of the buildings and some of the plans they had uh, for maybe even landing aircraft on the Spire. How mm. about that one? So we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. Now, the, the way we want to take this episode, though, is to talk about a woman by the name of Betty Lou Oliver. Now, this is the twist that we were telling you guys before break. Phil, this woman's survival story is probably one of the more remarkable stories I think I've ever heard. Yeah. And I mean, th this event in itself is, is kind of just amazing. 
and, and one that we're hoping that people haven't really heard about. I mean, you and I had certainly not heard of right. uh, about, but then when you get into the individuals who are inside this building and the stories of heroism and, and the stories uh, of just survival, like you mentioned of a Betty Lou Oliver, um, it, it takes the story and the event to a new level. And at the moment that Captain Smith crashed uh, his plane into the Empire State Building, Betty Lou Oliver was working on the 80th floor as an elevator attendant. And the crash caused her to be thrown out of her vehicle. All right. And as well as suffering, get this, from severe burns, Betty had a broken pelvis, a broken back, and a broken neck. Terrible, terrible life-threatening injuries. But it was clear that Betty would survive as first aid workers began making their way up you know, the floors of the Empire State Building and, and beginning to reach the Betty Lou Olivers who were working inside. They placed her on an elevator uh, to be uh, to go to the ground floor. And soon she would be driven to the hospital for proper treatment. OK, so they it, it sounds like the rescue workers were not really concerned, despite those injuries I just laid out for you. They actually assumed she would make it and they were starting to you know, focus their attention on people who are in worse shape than Betty Lou. Right. So, I mean, that in itself is, is just an unbelievable feat because right. you have a. You have a... An airplane crashing into the building. She's tossed from her her elevator car, mm-hmm. but still ends up surviving and apparently doing pretty well, you know, comparatively. Despite everything. Yes. Correct. One floor beneath Betty Lou Oliver, Therese Willig was still in shock over what had happened. She's on the 79th floor. In the immediate aftermath of the crash, she was certain it was over, you know, for everyone on the floor, including herself. Speaking years later, Willig actually described it felt like she was in a small universe separated from everyone almost being stuck on an island, she compared it to, because she was being surrounded by fire. She uh, managed to open a window and use a a handkerchief to protect her from the smoke as several women around her passed out from the fumes. But she was still convinced, Phil, that she was not going to make it to the point where she was taking off rings that were important to her and throwing them out the window so that people would be able to find them later on and hopefully return them to her family members. Uh, fortunately, Therese Willig's fears were groundless, too, because firemen actually arrived on the scene, rescued uh, many of the survivors, including herself, who were on the 79th floor. All right. But as you said, in in, in classic missing chapter form, Phil, the B-25 bomber is sticking out of the building. I mean, people on the street, people who are now leaving the Empire State Building are beginning to realize just what a harrowing experience this was. You would think the worst was over and that now the focus would be on putting out the fire, saving the the remaining people who are stuck in the building. But for somebody like Betty Lou Oliver, the worst might actually still be ahead of her. That's right. So here's what ends up happening. So the rescuers, as Phil said, they, they think, listen, I think we, she's going to survive. Let's put her on an elevator um, to get her back down. So they, they go to the 79th floor. The rescuers uh, place Betty on a stretcher and uh, press the button down. Unfortunately, they had no idea that the cables on the elevator had been severely weakened in the crash. And as soon as they placed Betty on the elevator, the cables snapped. Betty started to hurtle down towards the bottom of the elevator and her entire life, of course, is flashing before her eyes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But you know, the, the cables being weakened, they snap and the elevator emergency brakes fail completely. So not only did she survive, the first remarkable ordeal, she mm-hmm. survived her second ordeal of the day, probably with an even more extraordinary amount of luck by all accounts. The elevator, ready for this, plunged a total of 75 stories, approximately 1,000 feet, and she survived. 
thousand feet. So here's That's here's, amazing. Yeah, and here's why why she survived. Really, the thousand feet of elevator cable, of course, broke away, fell to the bottom of the shaft before Betty um, got to the bottom. By the time she landed, the cable was there, almost like to provide a, a softer landing surface. It coiled up. And there was a, a lot of air pressure within the, the elevator shaft that kind of slowed her down. So, I mean, the, some might call it luck. Some might call it divine intervention. This is just, this is out, outrageous. She ends up going, uh, coming down. They obviously um, remove her from the, the rubble and she survived. Now, Phil, not only did she survive, because I think people are listening to this and saying, this is crazy. This is like something out of a, a very cliche Hollywood movie. Let's throw this on top of it. We said that this happened in July of 1945. This was her last month on the job. Yeah. July 28th, 1945 was supposed to be her last day. She wasn't going to work at the Empire State Building anymore. Yeah. Um, it really is like something out of a movie. And, you know, it took her eight months to, to fully recover. And just five months after that, while she was still recovering, she actually returned to the scene with an elevator inspector. Um. To, to travel in an elevator after her ordeal to kind of get over some of her fears. That, that that's amazing. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is a, I guess you could say this is a positive twist on this too. I think there's probably better ways to end up in the Guinness book of world records, but she's actually added for the unlikely feat of longest survived elevator fall, a record that still holds today, but she ends up, you know, being a very successful woman and she passed in 1999. She had a bunch of grandkids. I think she had three kids. Um, but the aftermath of this, of this ordeal is, is just stunning. It, it ended up being about $1 million worth of damage then, which equates to about $13 million today. Um, there was the destruction of a nearby penthouse art studio, which we mentioned before the break. And then it would have been much worse, of course, if the fireman hadn't reacted so quickly and extinguishing the fire within 40 minutes. But it's just the, the, the magnitude of this, why was it not more highly, I don't know, magnified right. by, by right. newspapers and, and, and history in itself? And I think we might have an answer to that. Right. We, we talk about historical context, and we mentioned that earlier. And th there's good reason. This is obviously a major event in our nation's history. But in the scope of what's happening in 1945, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get overlooked, like you said. Although the crash shocked the nation... A week later, the bombing of Hiroshima in the Pacific Theater of World War II would obviously garner most of the media spotlight. So right. there you go, Phil. Yeah. I mean, it's it was shocked to that point, but then seeing the devastation and understanding the importance of that event in Hiroshima and what it meant in the in the grand scheme of World War II, which was still being played out, it's obviously going to get a little bit overlooked. Right, right or wrong? Right. And the building, this is this is what, what blows my mind is that it just that generation of people like, hey, you still have a job to do, regardless of what circumstances mm -hmm. you're going through, you still have a job to do. Despite the crash and the fire, the building was open for business on, on many floors on that Monday, mainly because the Empire State Building didn't suffer any real structural damage, um, especially in, in the, the bottom floors. But it, it's interesting. Eight months after the crash, the U.S. government offered money to families of the victims. And some accepted, others initiated a lawsuit that resulted in some landmark legislation here. Um, the Federal Tort Claims Act of 1946 gave American citizens the right to sue the federal government. So there is something that is a pretty landmark um, legislation that came from this. But overall, Phil, I think this is probably one of the more interesting researched 
topics that, that I think we've ever done. Yeah. And I think, you know, next time you see the Empire State Building, whether it be on a TV show or a movie or in a parade, you know, that's a story that, that hopefully you'll think about and be able to share with other people. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Shaw. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.